All right. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. I said it would be confusing to announce Stephen Bill as our new pastor and then for someone else to come on up uh, to the front, but uh, they thought you could handle that confusion, so. All right. My name is Scott Baker. I've been coming to Grassroots, I thought about 12 years, somewhere around there. And uh, yeah, right now I serve on the Grassroots Partnership Committee, and it's kind of in that capacity that, uh, that I'm here today. That's the church I went to when I was a kid, Calvary Mennonite Church in Manetteville. I wanted to tell the story of kind of how I came to, to come to Grassroots. So that church is, uh, you know, it's a small church, very evangelical, very charismatic, and I was into it. Like we, just like this morning, I was like a middle school worship leader. Um, you know, we were youth peer leaders all through high school, stuff like that. And, uh, and so that was, that was where I went. And when I was going to go to university, I got into the University of Toronto, and that's where I decided to go. And my community was worried. They're like, the big city is going to corrupt you, you know, um, you're going to like move away from Christianity. I was very confident that that would not happen. I said, no, 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 I'll be fine. But there's a sense in which they were, they were quite correct, that, uh, that moving down to Toronto and being exposed to a bigger world um, did, did kind of change me. Early when I was there, I saw a poster for Spaghetti Supper. Spaghetti Supper for university students at Bloor Street United Church, which is that church. And uh, I was like, okay, you know, they're probably like old-fashioned and stodgy, but I'll go because I, I don't usually say no to free food. And I like, I wanted to prove everyone at home wrong that, you know, I was going to go to church even though I was in Toronto. Interesting, when I looked up this picture, I found out they're having struggles with their justifying their building costs as well. And their solution is they're going to build a giant condo on top of their, their building. So uh, I'm not sure how I feel about that. So it's going to look like that in a couple years. But right now, it still looks like this. So I went to Spaghetti Supper. There was about 10 people there, other university students, and this, this reverend. I wish I, I wish I could, I don't remember his name. I wish I, I, I tried to look it up and I couldn't find it. But uh, so we sat around the table and we're gonna go around the table introducing ourselves. And a lot of people there were like me, you know, university students early in their university career and they were there to go to church. Um, but then there was someone who introduced herself as she's like, I'm not a Christian at all, I'm a Buddhist. And this was shocking to me. I was quite sheltered and naive. Like, to me, she might as well said she's a demon worshiper. Like, I, that's how I associated those things when I was growing up. But the reverend there was very much like, she was welcome. He knew about being a Buddhist. He said nice things about being a Buddhist. And that uh, it was obvious we weren't going to try and convert her, which shook me a little bit. And then later on, in the course of that Spaghetti Supper, it became obvious that the reverend there was gay, a married gay man, uh, which everyone else seemed to be fine with, but I was, again, I didn't storm out or anything like that, but it was scandalizing to me. I'd never encountered such a thing. 
uh, I didn't know that there were like these mainline churches that had different views on this. But it started to change something in me in that it, it let me know that there were other ways to be Christian. It wasn't all like the little church I grew up in. And that might sound silly to, to, to say that, but it was weird for me back then. And I really credit that night for saving my faith. Because I don't think my little, I think the people at home were right. My little faith, my little church I grew up in, that faith wouldn't have survived um, my university experience because I'm kind of an intellectually curious person. And I feel like being able to question, being able to explore while still remaining Christian is what makes me still a Christian today. I feel like if it was choose your Calvary Mennonite church faith or leave, I would have left. I went to that church through, yeah, there, I, let's say on the inside. Uh, I went to that church off and on while I was in university. Uh, it was like a, you know, and again, it was very, very different from the church I grew up in in ways I didn't expect. And when Amy and I lived in Brampton, we went to a, a United Church as well. And we really appreciated the, just the unafraid curiosity, that kind of thinking about, about your faith and not being worried about that, that we got from those churches. But there, if you've ever spent any time in United Churches or Anglican Churches or whatever, like there was always something missing there for me. Something that I had in my church growing up, this kind of like heart, this kind of like passion that just kind of wasn't there. So, and that brings us to Grassroots Church. So Amy and I came to Grassroots Church when Nathan was two, one, because we, needed, we wanted a church where we knew there was a good children's program. And we had heard that that was the case with Grassroots Church. And of course, Amy went here back when it was central free. So she knew like the building and everything like that. So we came to Grassroots Church for that reason. And here, I felt that I found a community that had both. Like it really was, and this comes and goes, but there is one, it's unafraid to kind of ask questions. It, the people were saying, you don't check your brains at the door. And I was like, this is great, right? But it still had that kind of passion for Jesus that I remember from my Calvary Mennonite church days and my, my churches growing up. So I loved it and I still love it. I, it still has those two it still has that kind of best of both worlds sort of sort of thing, and and yeah, it means a lot to me, and I, and I think that's why a lot of people are here is because of because of that. And so, when I was asked to serve on the grassroots partnership committee, one of my big things was I don't want any kind of denomination where we're going to lose that. Right, I want that. That as, you know, for me, everyone's got different things that probably they, they pull out of this church, but for me, I didn't want to lose that. So the partnership committee was formed 
year and a half ago, be, to look at, you know, as grassroots is going through this period of transition, should we join a denomination? Grassroots is what we call a non-denominational church. It's not United, it's not Anglican, it's not Mennonite, it's not, well, I mean, Pentecostal, anything like that. It's just its own thing. So there's benefits to being a non-denominational church. You can kind of do what you want, um, but there's huge drawbacks too, right? One of the drawbacks is that you can kind of do whatever you want, and then people are like, maybe not trusting, maybe not knowing what to expect. So we were looking at, should grassroots join a denomination? And we, we continue to look at that question because um, we're not answering that question today. The pastoral search committee is done, but we're not. Um, we still have to see if grassroots does want to do that. Um, somehow the, this word has gone out. We've been approached by, by other denominations saying, you'd be welcome here. And we've looked at them and for the most part we've decided the, the fit isn't quite there, but uh, that's still an open question, still one that we're open to input on. If you're like, you know what grassroots reminds me of? A uh, Mennonite church, and then we can approach the Mennonites and see. But we're not in a rush to answer that question, and we're still looking at that. But we also expanded the scope a little bit to see, well, are there other kinds of partnerships? Other ways we can work with other churches to help grassroots church? And that's where we came across the Jesus Collective. So this is from their website or their materials. So they say, who are we and why do we exist? And uh, again, the whole point of the Jesus Collective is to provide resources and relationships for what they call Jesus-centered churches. So you can join the Jesus Collective as a church, as a what they call a parachurch ministry, like, uh, or as an individual. And so we're, the grassroots church is looking very seriously on the road to joining Jesus Collective as a, as a church. So, yeah, they say they're passionate about advancing a Jesus-centered, Jesus-looking kingdom. So Jesus Collective was started a number of years ago out of the Meeting House Church in Southern Ontario. And since then, it's become its own sort of like entity. And the Meeting House is just one of those member churches now. So the Meeting House has had some trouble lately. I assume the Jesus Collective has been helping them, but those troubles haven't been affecting the Jesus Collective. And the Jesus Collective is still operating and accepting members and, and all this. So uh, the Meeting House is a, what they call it, Anabaptist. Uh, Anabaptists are Mennonites and brethren. Uh, like I grew up in, and, and Jesus Collective still acknowledges that it has Anabaptist roots, but they accept churches of any denomination, and all denom or even no denomination like us. So this joining the Jesus Collective it doesn't make us the Jesus Collective Church. It's not a denomination. It's just a group of churches sharing resources, and there are various denominations of churches in there. So. That's why I say we still have to answer the denomination question. I'm going to go through the five guiding values of the Jesus Collective. And again, I hope when you hear these that they ring true to what Grassroots Church is. 
So the first one is humble curiosity. It says, we recognize that each of us has things to contribute and things to learn. We offer our own gifts generously and practice hospitality towards the gifts of others. We lead with curiosity, assuming the other has something to teach us. The next one is this one, embracing disruption. We welcome disruption and embrace discomfort as a space of transformation. This reminds me of when we did community church and we're doing something similar soon. Some people are like, oh, community church, this is weird. Um, this is uncomfortable. And I'm a teacher by trade, and when I taught, um, taught math or whatever, and you know, some students were like, this is hard, right? And I was like, yeah, that's what learning feels like. Right? That's what growth feels like. It's, if you're just sitting there passively, you're not learning anything. Right? So it, it, when it's hard, when it's uncomfortable, that's when you're learning, that's when you're growing. So I felt when we did community church, some people was like, this is hard. This is slightly uncomfortable. And I was like, good, good. Yeah, you know, that's, that's what it should feel like. Generous power. We are generous with power, sharing it freely and using it where we have, have it to amplify others. We take seriously Jesus' model of self-emptying as the way of God. This one I think is about kind of privilege and leadership, like those things lead to trouble sometimes if people don't have that attitude. All right. Courageous unity. We embrace the full diversity of Christ's body and seek to learn from each other in our differences. You can't have unity without diversity is what they say, right? Like if you're going to be together, you have to acknowledge that everyone is also a little bit different. <laughs> the last one is radical transformation. And I think I'm going to leave any kind of top on that to, to Steve Bill when he comes out to take over from me in a few minutes because that's really the one he's getting on. They've always been looking at, okay, you know, do we as Christendom, do we as like the body of Christ need to change in order to better align ourselves with Jesus and being open to that change, even if it's a radical change. And it's, that's a, to me, that's exciting and uh, one of the things I like. So again, as a partnership committee, we feel that these kind of values align well with what Grassroots already believes and preaches, or that we at least aspire to. So we, we like that, and it felt right. We are looking at joining Jesus Collective. Joining Jesus Collective means we get resources. Um, there's resources that the Jesus Collective offers, um, they offer children and youth curriculum. Uh, I know Amy's excited about that. I don't know how many people know here that Amy writes a lot of those, the Roots and Shoots lessons like from scratch. Other times she can pull from other places. Um, you know, she's eager to have curriculum that aligns with these values that, that we, she can use in Roots and Shoots and all the way up to GIC uh, is children and youth curriculum. There are learning labs a resource library for adult activities and coaching and professional development for, for our staff. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Probably more important than these resources too is the, the relationships. So it's a network of churches that share, that can communicate, and we could be part of that. We have a lot to gain from that kind of network, and I think we have stuff to offer that kind of network. 
Like, for example, uh, the board of directors at Grassroots has been working on a policy about how to handle it when there's incidents of intimate partner violence, domestic abuse, among the couples of Grassroots. So they're like, how do we handle this with the perpetrator, the victim? Extremely difficult subject, but you know, I think the board of directors should be applauded for you know, making sure that Grassroots is prepared to deal well with that situation when it arises. So they, oh, <laughs> thank you. So they've been struggling to write this policy because it's not hard, it's not easy. When we're part of the Jesus Collective, we could ask the network, does anybody have a policy on this that we could borrow from and crib from while we make our own? And if nobody does, we could say, hey, we're working on this and we could share that with them. Um, so having that in place is, you know, it makes our work easier and it lets us kind of give to the larger body of Christ. So personally, when I look at the Jesus Collective stuff, I get that same feeling that I have when I came to grassroots. Like this is a, an intellectually honest and curious organization, but they still have that real passion for following Jesus that I am looking for. So I'm excited. If you've been following along in the newsletter, you know, we've been kind of dropping hints about this um, for, the, for a while. If I can advance to that newsletter. Oh, plug for the newsletter. Um, we have like hundreds of members of the Facebook group, but like only 130 like subscribe to the newsletter. The newsletter is a much better source of information than the Facebook group. You should make sure you subscribe to the newsletter. And... Uh, yeah, you can go to grassroots.church.communication, just put your email address in there and you'll get it every week and sometimes extra ones if we have extra news. So we've been dropping hints in the newsletter for a while about the, the, the Jesus Collective. And with the blessing of the board of directors, we are moving this process forward and uh, to become official, an official member church of the Jesus Collective. Uh, we don't know what the timeline is on that. Um, it could take a little while. And we will continue to keep you informed, either on Sunday mornings or through the newsletter. In the meantime, over the next several Sundays, we're going to be exploring some of the topics that the Jesus Collective has been working on. And I am going to invite our new or future or soon-to-be uh, leading teaching pastor, Steve Bill, up to talk about that. Okay, thanks so much, Scott. I appreciate that summary of the Jesus Collective. Um, you've now given me exactly 15 minutes to speak, which is awesome. Um, but we may go a little bit late today, and I probably should have prepared a little bit better for that. Um, so first of all, it is a huge honor to um, step into this role of lead and teaching pastor, or whatever we're going to call it. Um, Thank you to the Pastoral Search Committee for the hard work that you folks have put into this. Uh, and thank you for the community support as we um, transition into this role. Uh, like, like Linda said, or Vin Vincent said maybe, um, the details of all of this are still to be worked out. Uh, I'm not sure the timeline exactly in which I'll kind of like resume a full-time position, but starting, I guess, today, right now, um, I'm doing this in some in some some capacity, and uh, we'll figure that stuff out as we go along. So I, we, our family definitely covets your prayers during this time. 
And we thank you for uh, just your support and your continued uh, support of this community and, and this church. And um, as we enter into this new chapter, this new season, there are going to be struggles. There are going to be awkwardness and questions and, and all of that. And we just ask that you uh, will continue to come along uh, each Sunday and be part of this movement that uh, we are doing now. I have a whole thing prepared here today, um, but fortunately, I also provided some handouts. So if I don't get through it all, that's okay, because you can read this. So first of all, uh, this handout, the orange sheet, does everyone have one? Awesome. This is giving you kind of the heads up as to what's coming down the pipe over the next two or three months. Uh, I think it was alluded to already, but just as a quick recap... Um, we're going to be going through what's called, the Jesus Collective has come up with as five markers of a new reformation. And the five markers of a new reformation are sort of, well, I'll talk about that in a second, but essentially this is kind of like this framework that we as a community can kind of uh, situate ourselves within and help to, it gives language to a lot of the stuff that we as a community already stand for. Um, I think those who have been coming to this church for any length of time will, will resonate with that and will find like, oh yeah, this totally makes sense. Um, but that's not to say it's going to be just completely like, oh yeah, no problem. You're probably going to be challenged by some of this stuff and some of your thinking and the ways that you are, uh, the ways that maybe your tradition, your faith tradition, and, and some of the um, different different sources have spoken into your life over the years, um, you may struggle with that. And we're just asking you to have grace and to enter into dialogue. So we're going to, like today's going to be the intro as we're doing now. Uh, next week will be the first marker. And then the following week will be discussions within our home group here at, our, at this church. So, or I guess at this building, which is no longer the church, but where we are here today. Um, and then the third week, will be, or fourth week will be the second marker, and the fifth week will be a discussion. All of that is outlined on this sheet here as well. So please, if you want, just add that to your calendar. Uh, follow along, like Scott said, in our newsletter. Um, and this here is kind of a quick synopsis of what we're talking, what I'm supposed to be talking about here in the next few minutes. I'm going to try to keep talking really fast so we get through this. This is uh, the five markers and I'll just explain really quickly. So each marker is sort of a, a tenet of um, a tenet of, of a sort of a new worldview, not a new worldview, but of a worldview of a way to kind of um, take our faith, take the system that we have, this con these convictions that we have, put language around them, and then um, kind of live that out day to day. And so this uh, this sheet here provides context both from a theological standpoint and from a secular standpoint, as to what is the contrast between what the Jesus Collective, what these five markers of a new reformation are proposing, and what many of us grew up with within the church, and what the world says. So what the theological background is, and, or a theological contrast would be, and what the secular, what the worldly contrast would be. I'm not going to read these explicitly today, but I'll be speaking about them over the next few minutes here as we dive into this. So yes, the Partnership Committee has been working on the Jesus Collective. We're super excited about this. Scott has gone over all of that. If you do have questions about the Jesus Collective, if you're like, man, I am not too sure about this. This is weird. I'm just going to ask you straight up to keep coming over the next 11 weeks, participate in these conversations, participate in these messages, involve yourself, ask your questions, write down those questions, 
get engaged with the discussions that come so that we are all able to, for the most part, be on the same page on this as a community. Um, that's my challenge to all of you this morning, to myself as well. And I think that this is a, I'm pretty confident that this is a, a beautiful way of expressing our faith in 2023. Now, this whole thing, this five markers of a new reformation came about uh, th through a theology circle within the Jesus Collective. And uh, theology circle was a group of leaders and thinkers who were working together uh, to spur a hope-filled, Jesus-centered movement within contemporary Christianity. Let me stop right there because I forgot to say one thing. This series that we're doing is actually all a bunch of podcasts that have already been done. And speakers within our community here are being tasked with essentially summarizing those podcasts and presenting it to you folks, including this morning. So this is a podcast um, that I am basically summarizing and presenting to you. So none of this content is actually mine, or very little is actually mine. Most of it is being rehashed. Um, and so just bear with us for that. But that just means that you can actually go and listen to the original podcast as well and get much of the same content and, and you know, at least for myself, probably better, uh, more uh, articulated ways. Um, but so just with that caveat kind of out of the way, this theology circle um, kind of formed, I think, a couple years ago. And they've been working, uh, uh, this group of leaders have been working on kind of like, say, you know, coming together and being like, what is a new Jesus-shaped vision for what is at the heart of Christianity. How can we articulate that? What does that look like? And I think that's something that grassroots has been struggling with or, or seeking to define or articulate for a number of years now. And, you know, part of, not being a part, uh, part of not being a denomination or having no affiliation with a denomination leaves those big questions in our hands. And that can be a challenge to... Um, to get down on paper and to articulate. And so this five markers of a new reformation really allows us to situate ourselves within this and be like, oh, this, this is really us. This is speaking our language. And so we can just now adopt it and it works really well. Um, so this framework that emerged kind of sparked five questions. So who is God and what's he like? I don't know if I have a slide for this. What is the big project that God is up to in the world? What is our role as followers of Jesus? How is this going to be powered? How are we going to sustain this? And how are we going to hold these first four parts, these first four things? How do we hold that tension? Um, so that's kind of where it's at. And these are, these are big questions, and there's, like I said, huge implications for the church. And baked within each of these is, is uh, a myriad of thoughts and opinions and disagreements that at some point we want to hear, uh, you know, on those Sundays that are discussion-based. We want to hear those. We want to, like, wrestle through that stuff. We want to encourage that. Um, and if you're here this morning, you're like, what the heck is Steve even talking about? Um, <laughs> I am already lost. I don't know, I don't have any kind of context or, or larger understanding. That's okay too. Uh, I'll just ask that you bear with us and continue along. I think you'll, I think you'll find uh, that there's a benefit for all of us in this as well. So um, Megan Good, I think, is the next slide. And Megan Larissa Good was one of the uh, kind of the co-chair, I think, of this theology circle. And she's a pastor of a church in Glendale, uh, Glendale Arizona. She's also a scholar. She's written a few books. Um, and so she's the one who's being interviewed in this podcast. And so a lot of this content that we're sharing today actually kind of is her words um, repurposed. And according to her, a reformation 
is a period of recalibration and course correction. Recalibration and course correction. It's sort of like a midlife crisis, I guess you could say, um, which some of us are going through right now. Uh, <laughs> but a reformation comes somewhat naturally, in my opinion, out of dissonance. A dissonance being uh, this pursuit of the good, like how do we be faithful to God, how are we faithful to the scriptures, with um, sort of coming up against the powers, the power structures of the day, and this resistance, and this saying like, wait, there's got to be a better way, there's got to be a different way that actually is faithful uh, to what we believe God is calling us to. And so that dissonance that arises, that sort of, that, that disruption with the status quo uh, eventually leads to a reformation. And reformations, uh, Phyllis Tickle is, um, she, she's passed away now, but she was a, a scholar of religion. And she has said uh, kind of famously that reformations take place every 500 years or so. And so 500 years ago, of course, was the Protestant Reformation. 500 years before that was the great schism between the East and the West when the Roman Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox churches were formed. And the 500 years before that was the fall of the Roman Empire. 500 years before that is what some scholars call the great transition or great transformation. And so there's this sort of pattern throughout the last couple thousand years where every 500 years there's, you know, what you could call a reformation. And Tickle said it's important to understand that the core beliefs of a system within the Reformation aren't changing, but the way that they are presented, and this is another slide here, yeah, the way that they are presented and practiced does. The old version, the old system of Christianity isn't dying, but it is being renovated, reconfigured, reconstructed. It is being reimagined as to how it can be presented in the world. And so when we look at our society today, in comparison with the time period of the last Reformation, there are a number of parallels that actually make us think like, oh yeah, maybe we are on the brink of something new here. Um, and, and leading that is perhaps technology. If we think back to the first Reformation, the big piece of technology that came out was the printing press. And the printing press provided, um, first of all, it provided Bibles, it provided uh, copies of manuscripts and texts that could now be placed in the hands of people, which allowed new ideas to develop. And so people started thinking beyond what just the power structures of the day, the power authorities of the day said you had to think. And they th were able to think beyond that. When we contrast that with today, we have the internet. We have our smartphones. We have technology that is, has never, we've never been, experienced anything like this. We're able to communicate simultaneously with people on the other side of the world. We're able to receive any piece of information and it's in our pockets at any time. My kids, because we have Google devices in our home, and they're actually becoming more annoying than ever, but um, my kids, whenever a question pops into their head, they'll just look up and say, hey, Google, and they'll just ask it, and then the answer will come instantly. Like, that is something that happens in our world that never happened before. And so for good or bad, technology is a major um, disruptor, a major catalyst in this movement toward a new expression of our faith. Then there's also science. Now, 500 years ago, science wasn't established as sort of this formal thing. There was still a lot of like crazy pseudo um, science happening. And, you know, because we didn't have the understanding and the knowledge that we had back then, spiritual 
explanations were still much more elevated, which allowed the church to have a different role than it does today when we have very formalized science as sort of a governing way of understanding the world today. Religion and spiritual things are kind of cast off to the side because we can be like, oh, religion explains, or science explains everything. We don't need God anymore. So that begs the question, where does the church fit in that world? Where, Where does religion and spiritual stuff fit into that world? And then the third thing, and perhaps... This is um, most significant to our conversation this morning is uh, what Megan Good calls this crisis of authority, right? Uh, the Reformation 500 years ago began with this doubt about the, po- the Pope's authority, right? Are we sure we can trust the Pope? They were corrupt. They were doing all sorts of nasty things that didn't line up with what the scriptures taught. Um, and so the church and the Pope they were being, their, their authority was being undermined. And Martin Luther and the reformers came along and they said, you know what? We can no longer place our authority in that. Instead, what did they say our authority is based on? Everyone? Scripture. What was the famous saying? Say that. Sola Scriptura. Right. So Sola Scriptura became the new authority. We don't need anything else. All we need is Scripture. And now we've got 500 years of that system of sola scriptura under our belts. And with that, we have uh, 37,000 denominations. And so you have to ask the question, is that what Jesus was talking about in John 17 when he was speaking about unity as the church? 37,000 denominations in 500 years makes you wonder if maybe this understanding of authority being in the scriptures alone is really a a sustainable or an accurate way of um, asserting or of giving our authority. Is that the way we should be um, directing our authority? And so all of these three factors, science, or sorry, um, uh, what was the first one? Technology, science, and crisis of authority are a catalyst that spark what's being called this new reformation. And I like the term renovation as a way of explaining this. And I feel that is an apt metaphor because when you think about it, you, you can construct a house in a number of ways. One is you can, if, there, you know, if a house needs work on it, you can decide, I am going to destroy this house and rebuild it like that. Yeah, let's just watch it one or two more times so we really get it. Because that is, a, by the way, I should just say, as your new lead and teaching pastor, one of my um, skills, as it were, is finding memes like this and integrating them into sermons. You might call it my spiritual gif. <laughs> Thanks, Jen. I knew you caught that. Uh, so I will be utilizing those a lot. Um, but yeah, so we could rebuild it from scratch, and sometimes that's needed. But more often than not, we like to renovate. And how many of you, raise your hand if you've been part of a renovation before? Anyone? Okay, a few of us have. Yeah, renovations are, there's, there's two things with renovations. So first of all, they're messy, they're awkward, because you have to learn to live in amongst the mess. You have to kind of figure out how to, you know, do things day to day with within this mess of a, kitchen, you know, 
um, eating out of, or cleaning your dishes in the laundry sink and, and wiping the drywall sawdust off your technology, your computers every day, it gets old pretty quick. It's uncomfortable. It's not really fun. But at the end of the day, a renovated home, you stand back and you're like, man, this is beautiful. I love what we've done to the place. And that's, that's more appropriate, I think, as a metaphor versus just rebuilding. Because the bones of our faith system are good. We've got good bones, right? The good bones don't require blowing it up and restarting. We can just renovate. And, um, and so with that kind of context about what is a reformation the sort of the planting the reality that we are on the brink of this new reformation, how can we um, create a context that allows us to enter into this reformation, to even be um, at, the, at, the, at the helm of this, being leaders in this as a community? And this is what the Jesus Collective uh, kind of says. This is basically what they're saying. They're like, look, we wanna, we're recognizing the signs of the new Reformation. We want to find ways that we can make a sustainable effort as a community or as a network uh, that represents, that speaks to the need in our world, that is faithful to Jesus. And what does that look like? And so the first one, and I'm going to now go through this pretty quick, <laughs> um, is that God always looks like Jesus And all scripture is properly read through Jesus. God always looks like Jesus, and all scripture is properly read through Jesus. At first glance, you're like, oh yeah, that's no problem. There are some implications to that. And uh, thankfully, Matt Dennis will be presenting on this one in a couple of weeks. And so any heresy or any challenges that you can just direct your emails to him. Um, which is great because I'm glad he's taking that one for the team. But I, I think this one is really foundational. Uh, if we're renovating the house, this is sort of the big one that has to, we have to start with this one. This is what we need to tackle. Uh, this would be sort of the foundation that needs to kind of be built. Everything else builds off of this. And just like renovating a foundation on an existing house, this one is difficult and challenging and can even be scary at times. Um, so we recognize that, uh, and, and I don't want to get too deep into this one, but let's just say this. At the beginning, I said there were 37,000 denominations today, uh, and there are 2 billion Christians in the world, and each of us are praying to the same God, and yet, how many of us are, are yet, isn't it not true that when we look at that God that we're praying to, it seems, if we're talking with fellow Christians outside of our own community often, that that God looks very different, right? That God can be wildly different from one Christian to another. And how is that the case? And so this marker says, okay, there, you know, God's a big concept. Uh, you know, he's beyond our understanding, absolutely. And yet we have the person of Jesus that says over and over and over again in Scripture that, hey, when you've seen the Father, you've seen me. Or when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Basically, whenever you look at Jesus, when you look at Jesus through the Sermon on the Mount, through his ministry, through his caring for the, the, the people on the fringes, for his, his whole character, the, the parables he tells, that is pointing to what God the Father is like. 
And that is a big concept. Um, and we can't just assume and say, oh yeah, that's no problem. Like, no, no, there, there are big implications. And so I'm excited for Matt to get into that and for us to discuss that stuff as a community. Um, Megan Good provides an analogy that helps capture what is behind this first marker. She says that a lot of people think the Bible is like a puzzle and puzzles only fit together one way. So if you get a bunch of people in a room and you sit around a table and you work on that puzzle, 100% of the time that puzzle is going to come out and look the exact same, Right? But in reality, the Bible works more like Legos. Depending on what you do with the Legos, the shape that emerges can look radically different. And so the question being asked here is, is there one way of constructing those pieces that is better than another? Are there ways of putting the pieces together that are more or less accurate of who God is? And this is the key. Jesus is the cover on the box that shows us what the design actually looks like when the pieces are locked together in the best way. Does that, does that help you understand this marker? I see some heads and eyes, that's awesome. So Jesus has come precisely for the reason of showing us who God really is. And we understand God, we understand scripture through this lens. And uh, some would call this a Jesus hermeneutic. A Jesus hermeneutic is we read the scripture through the lens of Jesus. What does Jesus look like? That's how we understand the scriptures. Uh, and your handout, again, has sort of like, what is, what is our conventional upbringing, our theological upbringing? What does it look like in that regard? And what is the world? How does the world see this as well? And so take a look at that. I'm going to skip that in the interest of time. Number two is to be saved includes belonging to a community under Jesus called to live the life of the future now. And so what we're talking about here is what is the Christian story and what is Christianity really all about? When we speak of salvation, for many of us, uh, we grew up with this understanding that salvation means some kind of personal transformation, right? You believe the right things and you say this prayer and then you go to heaven when you die. How many grew up with that understanding of salvation? Yeah, most of us who grew up in the church would be like, yeah, yeah, no, that, that's, that's fair. and That's right, Steve. What are you talking about? Don't challenge that. I'm going to challenge that. I'm going to say that actually uh, the Jesus Collective and, and we would say the scriptures teach something much bigger than that. That God is much bigger than just personal salvation. And he's not just interested in the individual. He's absolutely interested in that. But he's interested in redeeming and saving all of creation, our society, our culture, everything within it. And that's what we're talking about with salvation. It's a much bigger story than just your personal salvation. Again, that can kind of rub us the wrong way, depending on our upbringing. And I want to just assure you that this is a safe space and we can have these conversations and we can speak to each other with, in love and, and, and recognize that this is, this is okay if we don't all agree on this. But as a community, these are the, these are the sort of uh, tenets that we're um, moving toward. And so when Jesus went around proclaiming the kingdom of God, do we think he meant, you know, here's your ticket out of hell. Is that what he meant? Or, or was it something much bigger than that? And again, I'm going to quote um, 
Megan here. Megan says, what we're saying, I think, yeah, what we're saying is that Jesus came to save the world, to create the good world that we all sense should be, and that's a much bigger project than just rescuing one individual for the future. It's a planting of the ideal of heaven here. It's a remaking of everything we know, which includes a communal element and a new way of living and all sorts of complex and beautiful pieces. Does that not sound beautiful? It does, in my mind. And I am excited to be part of a community that um, proclaims this and says, yes, this is what we mean when we're talking about salvation and God's work here in the world. This is what he's up to. Number three, evil is overcome through the power of suffering love. Evil is overcome through the power of suffering love. So we all admit very readily that evil is a very present reality in our world, right? And this marker is challenging the assumption that evil can be overcome through violence. It's saying that Actually, the best way to overcome evil is not through violent means, is not through power, is not through coercion. It is through enemy love. Enemy love. The best way to overcome evil is through enemy love, which is a really difficult concept, not just to grasp, but more so to practice. And anyone who's ever had an enemy knows that they're really hard to love. Right? And so this is going to be a challenge for us as a community of Jesus followers to pursue this in the days and weeks and months and years to come, like for the rest of our journeys as followers of Jesus. What does it look like? How can we better love our enemies? Because if we're convinced that evil is real, which we all should be, and we have seen throughout history our attempts to overcome evil by war and by asserting ourselves and asserting power and dominating the others and trying to attain peace through conquering and violence. Thousands and thousands of years of our existence have shown that that method just hasn't been effective. So what if we took Jesus seriously when he instructs us again and again through the Gospels to lay down our lives? You know, Jesus is probably the worst marketer um, for from a marketing standpoint, he's probably the worst marker in the world because he, he says, basically, his catchphrase is, follow me and lay down your life. Like, okay, Jesus, who wants to do that? And yet that's the call on all of our lives. And that, so that is a hard, hard thing to do. You know, prepare to die by following me. Um, so that's, that's marker three. And, and I should say this too, um, the paradox here is that the power expressed in the cross, the power expressed in Jesus laying down his life and us laying down our lives is in the power of the resurrection. When we know the story doesn't end with death, when we know the story ends with resurrection, we are better able and better empowered and equipped to actually follow through on that ethic of enemy love. But if we can't be convinced of the resurrection, if we think that's all there is, then this is going to be a struggle. And so our hope is in the resurrection. Our hope is in the, the, the fact that death is not the end. Death is not the final word. But if we are going to overcome evil in this world, it's going to begin with enemy love as Jesus proclaimed. 
So that's number three. Number four, the Holy Spirit empowers us to partner in God's work of reconciling all things. Holy Spirit empowers us to partner in God's work of reconciling all things. If God is in the process of saving all of creation, we, you and I as followers of Jesus, have been appointed as ambassadors to play a role in being agents of healing and redemption. And we can be that through the Holy Spirit's power. Through, we are fueled through the Holy Spirit. That's really it. The role that you and I have, as we've already talked about, is to be agents, to be partners with God in bringing reconciliation, bringing the redemption, the healing of all things in this world. We get to be agents of that, which is a massive calling, but we can't do that on our own. And this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. He is here to empower us, to give us the, the means of sustaining that effort, right? How many of us have started a good, you know, social justice initiative or um, some kind of effort that, you know, started off like, oh, we're so gung-ho, we're so gung-ho, we're going to fix everything, the world's going to be saved through us, and then it just kind of peters out. And so what we're saying is in order for that effort, in order for those good efforts to be sustained, we need to trust that the Holy Spirit's got our back, and he is there moving us and bringing us forward. So that's number four. Um, and I would say this, a secular solution to this divide, and this is, I think, relatively important because, I, you know, there's ways of uh, dismissing these five markers that many of us maybe are, are, ta- are uh, conceiving. But if we were to say, you know, what is, how does the world think that reconciliation looks like? What would they say is their solution? I think their answer would be tolerance, right? We just need to tolerate everyone. Let, let and let, let, uh, let live and... What's the word? Live and let live. Thank you, gang. Live and let live. Let everyone just kind of do what they want, and that's fine, and we'll all just get along. You know, like these sort of liberal values that uh, we espouse, and, and we think, oh, this is real. And there's goodness about tolerance, absolutely. But we've also seen that tolerance does not lead to healing, to reconciliation. That there's nothing wrong with having views and positions that we uh, hold firmly. Absolutely. And so how can we move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit in, in, bringing, in being agents of change and agents of healing in this world? And that is where we get to number five. Um, the church is defined by our shared center, not by the lines we draw. And I'm really excited about this. I'll be speaking on this one in about, I don't know, 12 years from now. Um, I think it's closer to June now at this point, but I'll be speaking on this one, so I'm, I'm going to save a lot for this, but I cannot emphasize enough how important this marker is. And so this is, you know, I want to close here. I know we're already crazy late, but um, I really want us to emphasize just the centrality of this one, especially because this demonstrates how we are to move forward in spite of our disagreements. And so, um, you know, these other four tenants raise hard questions. They raise challenges. And we want to entertain those. We want to discuss those. Absolutely. Um, But at the end of the day, we have to find a way to move forward. And if you look back at the, the Reformation 500 years ago, so again, that authority went from the Pope who said this is how it is 
to the hands of the people and in the, in, in the scriptures. And so now we have 37,000 denominations because it's splintered and fractured and splintered and fractured and splintered and fractured over so many disagreements. Right? 500 years. This reminds me of this cartoon. I think I've shared this in the past, but this is, you know, a, a solid church history course. Um, and there's a professor, and he's saying, so this is where our movement came along, and we got the Bible right. And so it's a whole history of Christian movements in that picture. And then the kid in this class like, Jesus is so lucky to have us. I, I saw this on a, a professor's door years and years ago when I was in Bible college, and it has stuck with me. And I'm like, this is exactly what we think. We got it right. And God, Jesus is so lucky to have us. And so obviously this isn't the reality, is it? 37,000 denominations speak to that. And if we don't have the humility to recognize that maybe we got a few things wrong, that maybe we don't have the corner on this, then that's where we need to start in our repentance. <laughs> we need to repent there. But I think that, so number five here is saying that there is a way that we can move forward with disagreement and still love each other. And the way it does that is by saying we don't define ourselves by the lines we draw on the sand around theological points, around traditions, or around whatever. That is not what defines us. So less of this and more of this. We are centered on Jesus. Do we have a posture toward Jesus or do we have a posture moving away from Jesus? Are we moving to become more like Jesus in our character, in our actions, in how we treat one another? Or are we moving away from Jesus? That is the defining line. And again, there's all sorts of questions, and I'm excited to get into that with you. You may be like, but what about? Yeah, you might have a whole bunch of whatabouts this morning, and that's cool. Um, bring those to our discussions together. Don't send me a bunch of emails. I don't want those right now. Um, but bring those to our, our community discussions, and we will move on from there. And so those are the five markers. I've really just kind of like blazed through this stuff fast. Um, is there another slide after this? Because I honestly don't know. I'm lost in my notes. Oh, yeah. If you, this is something that's actually intriguing to you, this number five marker. Um, a lot of this fifth marker comes out of a book by a guy named Doc, uh, Mark D. Baker, who's a professor at Pacific Fresno University in California. And uh, I purchased this book recently. I've been just devouring it. It is a brilliant book, and it's a brilliant way, a brilliant model of how we as a church can move along, especially in a society that is so polarized today and is so quick to put lines in the sand right? I mean, this is our reality. So how can we figure this out? And it's not liberal and it's not conservative. It's above that. It's a new way of looking at disagreements. And I'm challenging you, don't dismiss this. There is something here that I think our community and I think the world will benefit from. And so I'm excited to, to bring this into our community, to bring these practices and this way of thinking into grassroots church, not for the sake of us. Honestly, it's not for our sake, but it's for the sake of the kingdom of God that is, that is in this midst that we can bring into the world, bring heaven into the world around us. And I think this, um, you know, in, in, in sort of the, in the context of this new reformation, this is how we can begin that process.
So I'm going to wrap it up. Now, like I said, there are podcasts for each of these markers for this intro thing that I think did a way better job than what I've done this morning. I encourage you to take a look and listen to that if you're going on a run or you're just going for a drive or whatever. Um, We'll link all of that stuff on the Facebook group. We'll put it in the newsletter. And yeah, definitely sign up for the newsletter if you haven't already. We'll put that stuff out there. We want you folks to get uh, plugged into this discussion as much as you can. All right. Are there any questions right now? I felt like I teach at the college and I always end a a lecture with like, any questions? Okay, good. Um, Let's wrap up then. Let's, uh, let's, Let's invite Ron and the band up. We're going to do communion. Um, and this, yeah, these are, these are exciting times, folks. I don't know, maybe not there. I, I've, been, I've been in this stuff for a while also, so it's kind of getting me excited. Um, I, I want to read this somewhat obscure passage about the Lord's Supper this morning as we um, turn our attention and our focus on, again, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which, again, is the central, central part of our faith. And as we've gone through these markers, hopefully reinforces that truth to us this morning. Um, so this is 1 Corinthians uh, 10, verse 16. Paul says, This is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks or participation in the blood of Christ. And it's not the bread that we break or participation in the body of Christ. Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Let me read that again. It's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks or participation in the blood of Christ. And it's not the bread that we break or participation in the body of Christ. Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we share the one loaf. Now, we're going to use our imaginations with one loaf because we have these, which everyone is familiar with by this point. And if not, cellophane on the top, rip that open, eat this, and then drink this. Um, but I'm going to invite you forward this morning as you um, consider some of the stuff we're talking about, the direction our community is moving in, and how you can be a part of the death and the resurrection, this narrative that started 2,000 years ago, how you and I, by participating in the bread and the cup, get to be a part of that story today. What does that look like for us? What does that look like for you as an individual? What does that look like for us as a community as we begin this journey?